Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Samantha Kemp, who is the co-founder and chief investment officer at IMO. Sam, fantastic to see you. Thank you for coming in. So we're talking today about a bunch of different things. We're talking about technology. We're talking about an emerging UK asset class, single family rental, which we'll come on to. But let's start with some of your history. You've worked for some of the biggest players in the investment, real estate and advisory sphere, accountancy, brokerage, and a very large global private equity investment house. Tell us about some of those experiences and maybe share some of the nuggets of what you've learned in those places. Sure. Hi, Andy. My background is now I've, I've worked in real estate for about 16, 17 years. I started off at Cushman's, then was at PwC, and then was at Blackstone for several years before going to do my MBA at London Business School, which is when I co-founded IMO. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work in those sorts of institutions, which are incredible in many ways, learnt not only what does good look like, but uh, what great looks like. Mm. And, you know, I had the privilege of working with many really fantastic, fantastic minds. No better place to do that than Blackstone, I guess. Exactly. So sharp. Some of the best minds in the real estate world work at Blackstone. That was a real privilege to be able to do that. And I took all of that and used that as much as possible to set up IMO. And when I was at Blackstone, I'd seen what they were doing in the US market with invitation homes, Mm. could already see how much capital was being allocated within Europe to the resi space and could see that historically investors were ignoring all of the individual housing stock and just focusing on build to rent and existing multifamily. Mm. And that is exactly what Blackstone had done the opposite of in the US with invitation homes. And they had not been afraid of the challenge And they had very quickly and rapidly scaled up their portfolios of SFR to become the largest landlord in the US. Well, quite. And while everyone was still happily plowing into retail, Blackstone was saying, no, thank you, we'll buy some sheds and some beds. And everyone has has fallen into line over the following years. Well, that makes a lot of sense. We'll come on to some of this as we go through the conversation. But essentially, what problem are you solving with IMO? So there's two sides to IMO. There is the fact that we are unlocking what is the largest asset class in the world, residential. The residential market in Europe is worth about 42 trillion euro market in Europe. And 98% of that is individual houses and apartments. It's SFR. Only 2% is built to rent and existing multifamily. So when you've got as much capital that's being allocated to Resi at the moment, it makes no sense that they're only targeting that 2% and they can't access it. There's so many people struggling to figure out how to deploy their allocations into Resi. So we are unlocking that 98% for the institutional market. And then on the other side, we are very consumer facing. We are taking that responsible institutional capital and using it to acquire individual houses and apartments and upgrade those properties and then deliver them back to the rental market and deliver a not only a better quality product for consumers, but also a better customer experience. Because it's incredible that housing is a basic human need and yet it is so underserved for people. The fact that you can go and get a coffee for three pounds and you know, you've know you got a whole host of options on the high street that can give you a consistent product and a consistent service and you know what you're getting 
And yet when it comes to residential, which is the largest expense of a consumer's life, they have the absolute opposite experience. They often get a terrible product and get treated like crap by their landlords or or managing agents. So for us, it's really, really important to also be delivering a better product and service to consumers. So for us, it's a real win-win that we can serve both sides of that coin. Well, yeah. And I I remember asking, and I still ask stupid, naive questions now, I just have a podcast to do it on. But before I had that, back at the BPF, Mm. I remember asking someone back in 2006, 2007, well, you know, buy select landlords have made all this money in housing. Why aren't him and Aviva and people doing it and, and you know the guys sort of sat around the table just sympathetically said oh well you know we've got our different strategies for this and it was a bit of a fudge answer but largely is that point isn't it that it's just a bit too difficult and explain yeah. then talk us through the, the pillars of what you're doing and how you think it can actually be made viable for an institutional player and let's face it these guys are generally deploying what 500 million in in a typical housing or property fund right now as as, as a starting point minimum minimum, right so i mean that's a lot of buy to let properties it is it is a lot and obviously you know using traditional manual processes it is completely inefficient to be able to source acquire value and then manage thousands and thousands of units in disparate locations at the same time so completely understand why it hasn't been done and it just really points to the fact that technology is needed to be able to do this and and you're asking about sort of really how we've done that and you know the technology that we've done we've looked at it very simply we've we've looked at what the entire value chain is around residential we've broken up that value chain and then we've put it back together with technology and there's three sort of main principles to how we've done that and one of them is workflow automations that's sort of quite obvious that's just taking away some of the manual tasks but then to be able to do that well you need the second point is you need data infrastructure and that really enables data to flow seamlessly across the value chain and allow the data to be democratized for all. And what I mean by that is having the entire organization working off and having access to the same data sets. And each function has their own set of dashboards so that it's all that data is being presented to them in the relevant way. But it's allowing every function to have total visibility on the portfolios. It's allowing them to make real-time decisions and not spend half of their time reconciling numbers or doing reporting so it's one true source of data yeah it's one true golden source of data and then having all of your data in a clean tidy manner all centralized that then gets onto the third point which was around data analytics and whether that's enabling faster or more accurate underwriting or valuation processes or it's allowing other parts of the business to better understand our customer facing leasing funnel, these analytics basically mean that all of our people across the business are spending their time doing real value-add intellectual work. They're being presented with the analytics and then able to take decisions. They're not spending their whole time doing monotonous, repetitive work, sort of generating those analytics, which is what you end up finding in a lot of real estate organizations. Well, and I speak to some investors who, and we've been talking with a few different friends and clients about different tech platforms that they can use for management. I mean, some are unable just to pull off the net operating income of an asset with a touch of a button, which seems extraordinary that people are owning yeah. financial products, let's call them what they are, worth tens of millions of pounds and can't actually 
adequately price them because they're not able to tell you what income is coming off. It seems agree. extraordinary. And that but... all comes down to having the right data infrastructure in yeah. place and the right data culture. So let's talk about that. I mean, let's talk about these three things. I mean, data is one of those things that's banded around uh, mercilessly by everyone in property now. And I remember when the boss of JLL declared that they were a tech business, not a property business, which made me laugh. (laughs) But ultimately, you make a point that the real estate world is, well, it's not just a little bit behind, it's, it's quite a lot behind, particularly when you compare it to insurance, financial services, and these other parallel industries that thrive off of a lot of the automation. In terms of what you're using this for, it's probably worth you explaining that what you're doing is working with several different audiences. You have investors that give you money to deploy into properties, which you then manage for those investors. But then you also have a front-facing relationship with the consumers as well, don't you? Correct. So you have a lot of data that you've got to collect and report and give out. And because your assets aren't 200 million pound office buildings in central Paris, they're quite bitty, smaller. That gives you a lot more granularity, I suppose, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the challenge could be about just the volume of data that is having to be collected and not just collected for the sake of collecting but also collected in a consistent yeah. timely manner because you then have to have that across the whole business so uh, what what could what could other companies learn from that so if we're breaking down your three yeah. buckets so you've talked about data infrastructure so i was saying like you know some real estate investors i know can't tell you the operating income of a building mm. and if you think about dodgy data infrastructure what would we say well i would say the biggest example of that is british airways right every couple of months there's some sort of it outage i speak as the mm. former spokesman for heathrow so i know all about that i was the guy often at war with willie walsh on the uh, the weekend over briefings that we do but Brie is a great example of a legacy business, got lots of legacy systems patched together with bits of sticking plaster, literally bits of sticking plaster that just doesn't work. And I think there'll be many businesses, but it's probably not that many in real estate, I suppose, because operationally, operational real estate is a relatively young sector, right? But fundamentally, that infrastructure that you build on day one has got to last you, it's got to evolve, hasn't it? 100%. And real estate in many ways is far behind industries, like whether it's aviation or or banking when it comes to how they use technology. And in some respects, that's to the detriment of real estate. Like we don't, I think as an industry, we don't fully appreciate and understand the potential of what data can do for us. Mm. But then on the positive side it means we don't have all those legacy systems across the industry that you just referred to that have been patched together over time and you know they've they've kind of been plastered over a bit and you know trying to then implement something across an entire business is is really painful we're almost working with a bit more of a blank sheet of paper yeah in the real estate world, so, so tell us so, so to give us some free advice then so tell people what they should be scribbling on their blank sheet of paper, and then I'll introduce you to British Airways so you can go and sort out their <laughs> system so that I don't have to spend loads of hours on the phone so I can use my Avios. Very much first world problems here, listeners, yep. but there we go. Those are the problems that I'm facing day to day, Avios spending at BA. But let's go back to European residential real estate, Sam. Tell us what, again, infrastructure, what does that mean? So that's, you're creating a home for data and you're creating a home so that your investors I'm guessing, are going to want to know things and they want you to report those things. What are some of the things and how are you creating the infrastructure to present those things clearly? 
Well, I mean, we've created, so it's, you've essentially got like a sort of a, a data hub or a data lake um, yeah. of, you know, if you want to get tech, I mean, you could get super technical on this stuff and I, I won't because there's much better people in my business to talk about some of those technical things. But the essence is having a, a centralized database of all your data that can flow seamlessly and then generate the reporting that you need off the back of it. And um, I think what's really important for people in the, not just the resi space, but the real estate industry to understand is that this isn't something you can do piecemeal at sort of various points of the value chain. Like you need to think about your entire value chain yeah. and how you create that data infrastructure. And that's not about just bringing in a chief innovation officer or a chief technology officer and having them sort of sit in the corner and do some cool projects occasionally. It's, it's about creating as a whole organization, you need to create a data first culture and mindset which trickles down to you know absolutely everybody across the entire mm. business because it's the people who are doing the operational work on a day-to-day -day basis they're the ones who need to understand why they're being asked to collect the data and why that yeah. um, you know it's so important to be diligently doing that you know and then you need to have like data audit processes in place and data hygiene principles and all these sorts of things which you know, to wash your hands for 20 seconds and sing happy birthday. Yeah, so it's so key, yeah. um, all of these things. And it's getting the real fundamentals down and making sure that every single person across the business is understanding the importance of having a data-first mindset. And I think a big part of that is not just asking people to report on data and capture it because, you know, you just get asked, just anyone, right? If you ask them to do a task and they don't really understand why they're doing it because they're just doing because they've been told to, yeah. you're not going to get the buy-in. And this is where the democratization of the data becomes really important because if you can then feed back the data to the functions so that they have the visibility and the transparency on what that data is that they've been capturing and the data that other functions have been capturing and how it's all coming together and then allowing them to be a lot smarter about their decision-making and be a lot more informed about what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's empowering them to make decisions that they otherwise weren't able to do. You know, they can start to see the benefits of the data that's been collected. So it's, you know, it's about the feedback loops. It's about the circularity of that data, the transparency of it, and then, yeah, the accessibility of that data. And so, you know, it's an entire organizational effort to do this. It really is not just about bringing in a, a CTO or, a, a, you know, chief innovation officer. It, it's a change project across an entire organization which is hard it's really really hard but yeah. it's so critical and talking of change are we seeing change in how investors are now viewing the wider residential sphere the single family rental sphere that you're looking at is there a step change are people now thinking oh it's not quite as hard as we thought it was or actually they're prepared to face into the challenge because they actually recognize they need to invest their money somewhere the answer is that, of course, investors are more open to SFR now. I think the, the good thing is that in the US, SFR, single family resi, as an asset class, the granular individual homes, that is much more established in the US. And it's actually become one of the fastest growing sectors mm. in the US. Just last year, I think there was over about 50 billion was pumped just into single family resi. And the majority of that is not build to rents housing schemes. It's existing stock so, you know, the, the build to rent piece is actually a much smaller portion of these overall SFR strategies in the US. So I think people have taken note of that and they've seen that. Mm. I think there's also just the fact that especially with the current environment we're in and we've been going through over the past few years, there's been 
even more allocation to resi. And I think people are now at a point where they're being forced to consider alternative strategies because they just can't find enough opportunities within build to rent an existing multifamily. But I guess from a performance perspective, it seems to me odd that you would lump the two together because an investor that's funding the construction oh, of they're so different. clusters of apartments, but people lump them together under the badge of resi, right? But because if- they've had no options, because they've had no other choices. To them, that seemed the only way to be able to access housing was to build it. Which, so when, when yeah, people sorry. badge them all together under this banner, are they mispricing either of the two options? Because, I mean, let's take this apart so that, that we're clear. Ultimately, in a multifamily or a build-to-rent landscape, an investor will often be funding the development creation of an asset. There's planning risk, construction risk, there's development risk, there's leasing risk, lots and lots of risk before you've even got any bums on seats in your building, Correct. collecting rent, managing the building, Whereas with what you're doing and what others have done in the States, you're buying an existing building. It's lots of small buildings. So even if there's a problem with the building, it's one of many, many buildings. So your diversification benefit is huge. And you're not having any of the upfront risks on construction development planning, particularly as a big, big bugbear in in the UK and across Europe. But I I guess the counter to that, Sam, is, is how much return are you having to give up by taking on what's much more of a a vanilla level of risk. But I think that is the investment thesis at its core for residential. The whole reason people have started allocating to residential in the first place was because they saw this as a fantastic inflation hedge. They saw it as really low risk, provide the opportunity to create incredible stable income. And they'd whack out our old chart from IPD that showed Resi is the best performing asset class since World War II against equities, gold, commercial real estate, art, fine wine and and vintage guitars. Absolutely. And then that's over a long term basis. But even on a kind of more medium term horizon, the the volatility of residential has been far lower than, you know, a lot of these other sectors. So, you know, people have allocated to residential in the first place because of its low risk nature and income producing nature, stable income producing Mm. nature. But as you said, development is literally at the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm. It's high development risk, high planning risk, and everything is highly concentrated in a single location and you're getting no income for many years. But but I suppose suppose in fairness, I mean, I'm going to represent those not present in the room. Go for it. And I suppose that there's several points there. One it's a different pool of capital and that capital has appetite for that risk. Secondly, if you don't build this stuff, it's not going to exist, right? And ultimately, that is the challenge there. And thirdly, the critical point is certainly in the UK where 25, 26% of rented homes are classified by the government as non-decent in its English housing survey. And, And the same is going to be true not in all European geographies, but largely across the piece, that there's a lot of non-decent homes across Europe. So there is a need for better quality stuff, right? 100%. So, yeah. but, and, that, and to some degree, that is something you're tackling, isn't it? You're yeah, actually... no, it is. It is. I mean, IMO in no way is advocating against build-to-rent or, or new-build because it is absolutely clear to everyone that there is a critical shortage of new supply. So, you know, we absolutely believe that there should be more housing delivered. But our point is that it isn't the only option for investors to consider when they're looking at their housing strategies. Mm. In terms of what you were saying about the quality of the housing stock, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of sub-quality housing stock out there, 
which is also a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity for responsible institutional capital to be stepping into this space and, and this, uplifting and exactly, standards. And, and this was part of the substance of, of Larry Fink's recent letter in, in this broader economic investment debate of do we as investors simply walk away from dirty assets or, or do we actually work with them to improve them? And and his view in that letter was basically, yes, we do. We work with people to improve stuff rather than just shy away from it and only hold the shiny stuff. Yeah, so absolutely. what is Imo doing to improve housing stock or are you just focusing on the shiny stuff? No, I mean, so everything we buy is existing, which means that the majority of those assets do need to be upgraded we buy stuff that you know cosmetically looks in a very tired condition. And so we... if you've got a work throw practice, it can sort me out as well then. <laughs> <laughs> so we upgrade all of these properties and we deliver a housing product to consumers that in existing communities and existing neighborhoods that they typically wouldn't be able to access. It should not be that as a consumer looking to rent a property, the only way they can get access to good quality housing is if they go to that new build scheme, which is you know, halfway across London yeah, or, you yeah. know, 45 minutes drive away from their existing communities and families. And, you know, it's really, really important, I think, you know, especially in this day and age, social ties, social networks, that sense of community and having people close by that you can rely on is so important. And, I, you know, it becomes even more important that people should have better quality options and that's where a, they already live. They shouldn't have to be forced to make that decision between staying mm. with their communities and staying close to their families or their friends or, you know, getting a better quality property. That should not be a choice consumers are being forced to make. And how are you able to measure this? So when you talked earlier about workflow automation, it's not just about giving me a makeover. It's also about improving mm. the thermal efficiency of housing, thinking about the windows. You're obviously going to be looking at more efficient appliances and all of the other things that come from being a landlord, except on a massive scale presumably you're able to fill these properties with sensors and, and guzzle up all the data and be able to report that to your investors. Is that something you're now looking to do or is this still a bit of a moonshot? Uh, no, I think it's, it's definitely possible, especially when you're taking on properties that have poor EPC ratings and then you're able to upgrade them to you know, EPCC or you know, even mm. better percentage. And, that's, and, that's, and that must be quite a, a good thing in terms of the people that you're trying to hire on all the tech and coding people I'm sure you're, you're looking to bring in a minute to be able to say to them, look, guys, this isn't just about a financial product. This isn't just about operational real estate. But it's actually about making a positive impact on 100%. the environments in many cities. Absolutely. And I think one of the amazing things about IMO's strategy, or not just IMO's strategy, but anyone targeting existing properties, is that it's inherently the more sustainable option versus new build. Because, um, you know, the RICS, they did the fantastic study last year that um, reported that of a residential property's life cycle of carbon emissions, 53% yeah. of those are admitted before the first occupier has even moved into the property, mm. which... I think that's undercooking it, personally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be more, right? So the fact that, you know, and again, there needs to... I'm definitely not advocating against um, new builds. There needs to be mm. more new build, but it's wrong to just assume that because a new build has better insulation and double glazed windows and some solar panels on the roof, you know, that is suddenly the most eco-friendly option for investing into residential. It's not. The greenest building is the one that already exists. And yes, it's a hard challenge to figure out how to 
renovate and, um, you know, retrofit these properties, um, not just in resi, but in commercial. You know, a lot of people are having the same struggles on, on the commercial side as well. But stepping up to that challenge, I think the real estate industry is a real responsibility to do, especially in the resi space. When going back to what I said before, 98% of the resi space is individual apartments and houses. It's not the new build stock. So if the institutional world genuinely wants to have like and I say very genuinely wants to have a significant impact on helping the the world achieve net zero targets they're not going to do that by only targeting two percent of the market they need Mm. to think how they're actually going to have an impact on that 98 percent just targeting that two percent is going to have a negligible impact we need to think about how we're going to actually move the needle on the rest of that 98 percent. And, and practically speaking what does that look like next so let, I mean, as we bring things to a close let's try and summarize what that looks like so that looks like me the uh the andrew teacher pension scheme for north london giving you 500 million quid uh what do you do with that money you're going to go and leverage it up presumably and then what, what do you do talk talk me through in in 30 seconds what happens to the North London Andrew Teacher Pension Fund's money. Okay, correct. If we're looking specifically at North London, we do all the data analytics. Or well, um, you can spend it where you want. It doesn't have to be in okay. North London. I'm happy with the bit of well, however, geographic like, you di- know, Investors will come to us and say, we want to do Germany, we want to do UK, we want to do Spain, or you know, they'll be more specific sometimes, say we want to do this, this, and this city. So we start off with the data analytics and we define a strategy for how to invest that capital. That's, you know, which areas are going to get the correct risk return profile that matches what the investors requirements are and that's different to how majority of the real estate world exists at the moment you get presented an opportunity in the real estate space to you know buy this hundred million office mm. building because he goes said here you go charles exactly and you then try to collect data to justify the investment mm. into that location which is actually completely the wrong way around of how you're meant to set up investment strategies you're meant to set your investment strategy and then go find the opportunities that will meet the strategic requirements so that's what we do up front we set the strategy we identify which areas we should be targeting that's you know where the operational technology then starts to kick in. So our sourcing setup is that we've got all these leads coming into us, hundreds if not thousands of leads are coming into us every night, both from consumers directly coming onto our website and and registering their details, but also we've got technology scrapes on all of the listing portals. So every night there's all these leads coming into us and we're able, using the technology, to automatically filter through those opportunities to identify the ones that could potentially meet our investors. And you you presumably set a bunch of different indicators that say, where is this property? How old is it? What state is it in? Yeah, correct. We have a buy box. We have a buy box that is both looking at the physical characteristics, but also then looking at what the potential returns could be on that asset. That allows us to essentially create a short list of assets that we Mm. can then target. And we then do an inspection on those properties. So we have people in in each of these markets to go do those inspections. And we've created our own inspection app where our people are able to collect over 250 data points for Mm. every single asset. And that can be really basic data like you know what is the square meterage what are the number of rooms the number of bathrooms Mm. but then we also when you start combining that with things like what is the ceiling height as an example you can automatically calculate the surface area of the walls and therefore what is going to be the cost of paint or what is going to be the cost of redoing the electrics in that property and those are just two small examples but you can see how you can on a mass scale yeah. yeah on a mass scale and you can automate the refurbishment calculation all the different line items that go into estimating capex budgets 
we're able to automate all of those. Yeah, so um, there's actually quite a lot here that, that's actually very relevant to the wider real estate build environment space. Definitely going to give you a call when I move house. We'll come and do an inspection on your property. It's really useful for me. Yeah. So what, let me look, look finally, what, what does the future look like for this space? So I, I think clearly we're seeing huge amounts of capital coming in to the private markets for all sorts of reasons. We've got huge demographic shifts in the Far East that are bringing a hell of a lot of institutional capital home to look at some of the massive office deals that have been done in, in central London over the last six months. I mean, it's mad. How much of this is going to filter through into SFR? And, and do you think that the difference in risk profile of standing SFR stock versus the development cycle of build to rent and multifamily structures. Is that going to attract longer term capital that's happy with a a 2% return? Do these people, do you think, recognise that with that sort of sphere, your exposure is to macro risk rather than asset level risk? Yeah, I think so. The investors that we started working with, and you know, we've raised over two billion of of capital within the past six to nine months. So there's clearly a lot of people starting to look at this, and mm. you know, we have a lot more investors in the pipeline. But those investors, obviously, they're looking at this sector as a new sector. But all of their exit strategies are thinking about those even lower risk, even more core focused or super core. Mm. focused investors so it's blurring the lines with infrastructure in in a genuine way yeah absolutely it's it's people who want incredibly low risk stable long-term income and yeah exactly what you said where you're getting macro exposure because when you have such a diversified granular portfolio you're essentially diversifying away your asset specific risk you know from a statistical perspective Mm. so your risk is that basically everyone is out of a job because there's a huge economic catastrophe or something like that, rather than actually someone's opened a slightly posher building over the road. Correct. Absolutely. So you're, yeah, you're left with a macro level exposure at that point. That's probably more aligned to, you know, government bonds Mm. than other parts of the real estate sector. So an interesting blurring of the lines and something that will obviously continue to come back to over the coming months. But thank you so much to Sam Kemp, co-founder at Imo for coming in and, and some great advice there not just on investment strategies but on repainting your next house listeners um, I, I've used some of that analytical advice when buying boxes of wine on Majestic my wine often said my wife will say why are you doing this and I'll say well I've, I've got a, a 25 point underwriting philosophy of why we should buy this <laughs> this is very very expensive overpriced bottle of wine but let's move on from that thanks Sam Kemp uh, thank you very much thank for listening you, you can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Spotify, although more people seem to love Spotify than Apple for some reason. You can subscribe by searching PropCast. Do leave us a comment. And if you've got any suggestions for awesome people that we should speak to in the future, please do drop us a line. But thanks a lot for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.